Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a warm morning here in the capital is Richard Smith. Richard is the joint owner and managing director of Opus Land Limited, a leading UK property development and investment company with offices in London and the West Midlands. Uh, Richard, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning and thank you. It's a pleasure welcoming you onto the programme today. Certainly is a lovely day for you. And the nation's in jubilant mood as well. We record this, of course, on the morning of the 30th of June 2021, and everybody's celebrating England's result against Germany at the European Championships just yesterday, of course. Um, We do indeed, and a nice bullet for the country as it comes out of the COVID crisis. It does, exactly. And um, I think a good place to start would be by addressing that elephant in the room. Sorry to, of course, sort of tampen the mood with that, but we have been living in um, under, rather, COVID social restrictions for the best part of the last 15 months in one way, shape or form. So looking back over the pandemic at large, Richard, um, to what extent has all of this affected you and affected your business, would you say? Right. From a personal point of view, it's obviously been horrific. I suppose um, it's many generations equivalent to the Second World War, isn't it? Something we certainly don't want to live through again. Mm. Um, And I feel terribly sorry for the many lives that are lost and the suffering that goes on and continues to go on. Um, It is quite frightening. However, from a business point of view, um, we have not suffered at all. In fact, the opposite, which I almost feel quite guilty about, actually. Our principal, uh, we're commercial developers. Our, our principal business is building sheds, uh, namely big factories and big warehouses in the Midlands. And all COVID has done is exasperate and increase dramatically the need and demand for those um, to the point where we're busier than we've ever been. Uh, we literally can't build enough sheds. The requirements we have way outstrip the Uh, land supply that is available and our ability to get them built on time. And we've seen some well-documented issues with supply chains over the pandemic as well. Is that something that's afflicted the business also? Yes. That's only just kicked in with us. Mm. And I don't think that's pandemic related. Um, We've literally in the last two months at most, We've suddenly had massive supply chain issues with cladding, steel, concrete, and various other products. Um, And I think that's come about for totally different reasons, because the majority of it, to be fair, uh, historically has always come from the UK. Um, The principal reasons are, number one, there are an awful lot of big sheds being built. You'll see them going up everywhere. Mm. That increases the demand for such product. Secondly, we have a massive infrastructure uh, program going on at the moment um, in the shape of HS2. That is creating another massive demand for materials. And um, thirdly, um, everybody, uh, whether they're they're a house owner or, 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 or they're a developer, is doing some sort of development. Everybody through COVID, and this is COVID related, I suppose, decided to put an extension on the house. 
So the building industry generally is under a, a massive stretched um, um, uh, demand at the moment for what they do. And I suppose that's not going to go away anytime soon either, is it? Because the government's agenda for recovering from this crisis, the build back better mantra, that's putting construction very much at the forefront, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We're getting inflation in construction as well at the moment. That's most likely more of a short term problem. Um, We still don't know where that's going to end up. That makes us all a bit more wary about where we're pricing our product. Um, and the deals, because obviously we're, you know, it's big bucks we talk about when we agree to lease or, or sell um, a building to somebody. We've got to, we take the risk on what it's going to cost us um, and factor in um, increase in inflationary increases, etc. We're having to look very carefully at that at the moment. And like everybody, we're, we're looking to increase our margins as much as we can in order that we've got enough contingency there to allow for the increases we're seeing in building costs generally. Now, I appreciate, of course, that business has been booming uh, during this time, for want of a better phrase. Um, But, of course, you mentioned that personally it's been a very difficult period. Um, Would you say that from your experience of managing through the pandemic, you've maybe developed an awful lot as a person and as a business leader? I'm very lucky. I run a business that um, has a very high turnover, but a very small staff. Um, we literally run our development company on seven staff. Um, everything else we outsource to consultants. Um, as a result, I haven't had those problems, and all my staff are great friends of mine um, who I've known for an awful long time and people I care very much about. Um, and have been very loyal. As a result, as a team, we've coped very well in that everybody has worked as hard, if not harder, from home as they did in the office. So I've had no issues there at all. So adapting to that sort of remote working framework has been quite easy. Yes, it has. And of course, it has changed the working environment of the whole country. Mm. Uh, Flexible working, as I think we now call it, is most likely here for the future. Um, I like to keep our office open as much as we can. But Mm. for instance, uh, over the last couple of months, I've noticed that there's hardly any point having the office open on a Friday. Um, And I think a lot of people are seeing this. So we're sort of still deciding whether we want to open the office full time on a Friday or not, or whether we just close it. We all work distantly on a Friday. And furthermore, we all, if we've got meetings out, and it's a nuisance to come to the office. What's the point in coming to the office? We've learned how to work at home. I didn't, I mean, when this pandemic started, I'd never done a Teams meeting, a Zoom meeting. Um, I was scared stiff about it. I'm in an age where technology really has passed me by. Mm. But I'm the world master at it now. And it, it is so easy. You do get fed up of it. It does. I think in the first lockdown, it was, if you remember, we had that wonderful weather. Um, and it was all a bit new. So we all sort of coped with it with the smiles on our face. But the second lockdown really did get depressing. The weather was awful. We're fed up at just staring at screens and people speaking to people on screens all day. It became quite depressing, actually. And coming back to the office and interacting with people, 
Um, as one does, especially in our business, we all need ideas, and we we, we feed the, we only feed those ideas off each other when we are together. Um, is a very important part of our business, and mm. also um, brightens us all up. It does. And I think we've taken that sort of social interaction element of being with our colleagues for granted pre-pandemic, haven't we? And as good as remote working yes. has proven to be, it isn't a yes, one-size-fits-all yeah, I saw on I saw on television this morning some of the less fortunate people mm. um, um, who, who have underlying illnesses of one sort or another on television this morning and how depressed they've they've become through this and how insular and the fact that they're now frightened of going out it's not good is it no it isn't and there are still some lingering anxieties there aren't there um and i think this was the concern ahead of the proposed sort of lifting of social restrictions and the economic recovery that's expected are people going to be willing to venture out into city centers again frequent those yeah. venues and spend money so yeah we're still in a little bit yeah. of a state of limbo in some ways but it does seem that there is appetite there for people to go out again because they've missed it so much. I think there is. I think there is. But as you say, if you if you if you commute or, or by public transport into the centre of, say, London, you are going to be wary about it. You are going to be wary about going to a shop in the middle of a city, um, especially when retail online has become so easy. Um, a whole change in the way society works, and changes for our industry, and in that we have to redefine what our city centres are about and how they operate. And we don't yet know the answer to that, but we do know that there will be city centres will be far more mixed use than they used to be. They will certainly, because that hybrid approach that we've discussed to working both flexibly and then maybe working in an office once or twice a week, that seems to be the status quo, doesn't it? And so city centre usage is certainly going to be changing over the coming months and years. Absolutely. Yep. And that's a challenge for the construction sector to embrace, isn't it? So with regards to planning and moving forward, it's going to be a very interesting time. Yeah. Um, I don't think planning will ever really change. Um, there's, there's a lot of talk by government at the moment about making planning simpler. You may remember that Eric Pickles tried to do that with the NPPF, and all yeah. that did was by trying to simplify it, it made it more uncertain. It didn't really work. It's not just planning. It's the complete, um, the complete service round planning, um, highways, all the other consultees, making them work as one in a more efficient manner is what we need in the planning system in the UK if we're to make planning work. I think that's very right. And in an ideal world, sort of looking ahead to the next 12 months, just before we do wrap things up on the show today, Richard, um, where do you see the industry heading as we move out of social restrictions? And indeed, where do you see Opus Land Limited this time in 2022? And what are you hoping to achieve? Well, <laughs> more of what we've done. Mm. Uh, why alter a successful model? The successful model at the moment is building lots of sheds for lots of occupiers, uh, mainly in the Midlands, but 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 maybe uh, stretching that geographical region slightly, but always keeping it within maybe an hour and a half drive of our office here um, in Henley and Arden, our main office here in Henley and Arden, which is just south of Birmingham. Um, uh, and very much keeping the – we've always been demand-led, and we've always been occupier-led. Um, 
I used to run a, a commercial surveying company um, known as Grenfell Smith and Duncan, which I founded. Um, and, and I learned then that there is no deal in commercial property unless you have an occupier. It all feeds off the occupier. In other words, the occupier has to be treated as the king. And this business has always worked on the basis that find the occupier and there is a deal there. So we'll continue to follow the occupier and have sites where occupiers want them and build what the occupier wants. Um, at the moment, I think that will mean the majority of our development will continue to be in sheds, warehousing and industrial. But I think um, other uses will come back. Um, we're building a 95,000 square foot HQ for Caden Gas at the moment at one of our big sites. That's an office building in an out-of-town location. I think deals like that will come back. Um, we've never really concentrated on retail. I've never been a retail man. I've never really understood it. I suppose I'm quite grateful I don't at the moment. Um, I don't think it's a sector I'd want to be in. Um, hotels, um, again, the market very much disappeared during the pandemic. That will come back. There is a demand for, undoubtedly, a demand for more rooms. Um, and then aftercare, care homes, that sort of thing, all that sort of stuff, really. Um, but again, all relying on the occupier. Whatever the occupier wants, we will provide for them. And that's all you can do, isn't it? And it's going to be an interesting time to see just exactly what happens with the industry moving forward from here and exactly how our city centres, especially if we discussed, are going to be used in the future. And I think as we... Yes, it will. Mm -hmm. Yes, it will. And of course, we're only a small cog. We're a, we're a small, principally family-owned developer. Um, we have some very big competition um, who have many more mouths to feed and, and also run bigger ships that are not quite so easy to turn around when the need comes. Um, and I'd like to think we can stay like that. Yes, exactly. It's testament to small business, how they've adapted and been able to pivot so effectively over the course of the pandemic, for sure. And let's yeah. hope that we do see that continuing over the course of the coming weeks and months and indeed years. And as we start to understand more about the sort of shape that the recovery is taking, Richard, I'd love to catch up and hear more about what your business is doing, because I have thoroughly enjoyed having you with us. And it's been a real eye opener. And since we're still in that state of limbo, I'd certainly love to review things again in future when we no, I, I've enjoyed it too and I, I, I'd love to do the same fantastic and just because we're still um, in like I say that sort of state of stasis waiting for the restrictions to go do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on we're not quite there yet but better days are certainly ahead of us I'm sure no I, I feel a lot better now because I'm such an age I'm double jabbed and we've been double jabbed for some time and I'm very grateful for that I'm also very grateful for um what the health workers and, and and ministers in government have done to do the very best they can during this horrible time. It's very easy to criticise, but um, this is something we've never had before. And I think you've got to admire uh, many people who've worked very hard to keep us safe and to get us through this. Yeah, leadership has really stood up to the test and whatever you make of uh, what they've done, hindsight is a wonderful thing, of course, in some aspects. And we should really be appreciative of what we've managed to accomplish over this Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Uh, Richard, thank you uh, once again for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Uh, my pleasure. 
It was wonderful welcoming Richard Smith, joint owner and managing director of Opus Land Limited, onto the programme today. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be sharing his take on the last 15 months of the pandemic and his hopes for the weeks ahead of us. That is coming up now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a 
service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, mm -hmm. but actually I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, 
have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I, 
wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack 
scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something 
over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, 
because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways, uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice 
sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.